everyone, Christine here, just letting you know that the episode you're about to hear was pre-recorded in October. We're playing it for you on November 22nd, just before the Thanksgiving holiday. I'm back in New Jersey with my family, and the rest of the team is also out for the rest of the week as well. So, sadly, there won't be any shows released tomorrow, Thanksgiving, or Friday, but we will be back to normal programming on Monday. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and I have in studio with me right now, healthcare analyst Todd Campbell. Todd, welcome to Fool HQ. Christine, thank you so much for inviting me to come down. It's so great to be on the show with you live and in person. This is very exciting. As our regular listeners have probably picked up on, usually Todd is Skyping in, but he is here in Alexandria, Virginia today because we're having our annual writers conference where all of the Pool.com writers come in for a couple of days of meeting each other and meeting the in-house gang and doing a bunch of workshops. And we are about to kick it off in a few hours. And we're very excited to have you all here. Oh, it's just such a wonderful opportunity to connect with all the great people that work for The Fool and fellow writers you know, for healthcare and be able to just kind of share our experiences and what we think about certain things. And I'm sure that we're going to get some really great articles um, out of some of those conversations. Absolutely, and I can't wait to read them. Yeah, it's always a really good opportunity to, to talk shop with people, and you know, like, we're all a bunch of investing nerds, <laughs> so already this morning, the conference hasn't even started yet, but already there have been writers kind of floating through the editorial part of uh, of the fifth floor here at HQ, and they'll stop by and they'll be like, like what do you think of Apple? Or, <laughs> you know, like, you, you just can't help it. That's that's what we're ultimately all here to do, is, is share in this love of investing. So, should be a lot of fun, but before we get to all the festivities, we figured we would record an episode, since I so rarely get to do this while looking at you face-to-face in the studio. So it should be, should be a really fun episode. Yeah, I think it's going to be a really important episode, because we're going to get to talk about you know some foundational um, topics, about how, how to build and structure a portfolio. I think that's really an important and sometimes overlooked part of investing. Yeah, we're going back to basics here. And on the show, we talk all the time about our different stocks that are on our watch list and uh, things that we own, but we don't really talk a whole lot about how to put that together in the broader scope of your whole portfolio. And so, some of the topics that we want to hit today, we want to talk about why you should be diversified, uh, why own stocks at all, why own healthcare stocks, because of course we have to bring it back to healthcare in the end. And hopefully, we can uh, give our listeners some really good takeaways about portfolio management in a a higher level sense. So, uh, first off, we are a stock picking company. We talk about buying stocks all the time, but that's not the only place that you can invest. You want to give our listeners an idea of some of the other places that you can invest money. Do you mean as far as like diversifying across bonds and yeah, commodities? Like, yeah, and, you could. You could. And uh, there, there's so many metals and yeah. real estate. Absolutely. I mean, healthcare. Healthcare is the only game in town. What are you talking about, Christine? I mean, <laughs> it's a biotech yeah, or bust. I mean, come on, 100. You know, plus margin. Come on. Um, no, I mean there are there are a lot of different um, places that you can put your money, and it doesn't have to all be in stocks. And for many people, it shouldn't be. I mean, obviously, as we get older. And our income streams change. Perhaps we're retiring and we're collecting Social Security or something else where our income isn't quite as high as what it was when we were uh, working full time. Uh, we want to have things like bonds. And then if we have some tax issues, maybe we want to be looking in bonds and saying, well, maybe we want to have some municipal bonds so that we have some tax advantages. Or maybe, you know, we want to have some insulation. You know, there's a great, um, some, of the, some of the leading portfolio managers out there recommend that you have 5% in gold, for example, as, some, as an allocation. Uh, just to try and insulate yourself a little 
little bit against some of the risks of, of instability in the world. Um, so the, yes, there are a lot of different places that people can invest their money outside of just individual stocks. They can buy oil futures, they can do all sorts of crazy things. For most people, um, once you get beyond equities and bonds, though, you start talking about taking on a lot more risk in the portfolio. And I think that that's something that you know every investor has to balance. Because you're not just talking about each individual piece of your portfolio. You're talking about how it all, in the end, comes together, right? What's the aggregate effect that this is going to have on my pool of cash? Uh, so, you know, thinking to yourself, oh, I can put 5% in gold. Well, yeah, you only have 5% in gold, but what's that going to mean to the broader portfolio that you have? Is that enough or is that too much? Yep, and something to also consider is how much you should be investing at all, as opposed to holding it in cash. Um, if you are going to need that money relatively soon, and by that I mean within the next three to five years, it's probably not a good idea to tie it up in particularly the stock market or the more volatile asset classes. So definitely something to be considering, particularly as you get older. If you're going to need the income in retirement relatively soon, you might not want to even invest it at all in any of these these asset classes that we're talking about. Right. And as stock pickers, you make a great point. I mean, David and Tom Garter, they've talked about this in the past, but having a little bit of dry powder held back um, to be able to take advantage of opportunities that they see along the way. And if you're in, invested 100% of all your money that you can invest, then you, you're not going to be able to take advantage of some of those blips on the radar. Yep, that's a great point, too. So, with that said, let's talk specifically about stocks. So, the sector of your broader wealth that you decide should be devoted to stocks. How how do you diversify that, and and how many stocks must you own in order to feel like you're diversified? Where do you, what are your thoughts there? Well, I think that there's been a lot of studies that have been done uh, talking about the the right amount of stocks. I'm a stock picker, so you know most of my money is in individual stocks. Um, and what I've discovered is that if you're managing a very large pool of money. So, for example, let's say you're a portfolio manager managing, you know, billions of dollars. Then you're going to want to own 50 plus stocks. <laughs> you just you, you almost have to just because you've got so much money under management. Um, and if you tried to to own a small number of stocks, you'd own, you know, 20 percent of each one of the float of of those stocks. You just couldn't couldn't conceivably do it. For individual investors, I, I think that the sweet spot tends to come down to that 15 to 20. Uh, you get much beyond that. And I think that there's been research that's been done that says that we can only, as humans, handle so many things at once. And I think that once you get beyond into those double digits, your ability to handle those things really starts to fall off. So if you have a portfolio of 50 in your stocks and you're trying to manage that yourself as an individual plus work full time, you're probably going to miss some things along the way. Yeah, it's putting a lot of work on yourself to keep up with every single one of those 50 different companies. There are also going to be a ton of transaction fees associated with buying and, and maintaining reasonable amounts of all of these different stocks that are going on. I'll also add that if you have too many stocks, you're probably just going to revert to the mean. And what I mean by that is if you're so, so diversified, that you own 200 different stocks, you might as well just own some sort of S&P tracking index fund, and you'll basically get the same return without the hassle of having to keep up with all of those companies and considering yourself a part business owner, because that's what you are as a shareholder, and you won't have the transaction fees of having to buy them each individually. But I also will point out that too few stocks is also a problem. You don't want to have under maybe that, that 15 uh, floor amount, just because 
a single failure at that point, if you only own, say, five stocks and one of them completely goes under, you're losing out on a very sizable amount of your wealth. And particularly if you have a lot of your total net worth in stocks, that can be really devastating. And that sort of risk will absolutely keep you up at night. Keep you up at night and potentially, you know, cause some very big long-term damage to your portfolio value. I mean, we we see this in healthcare all the time, right, Christine? When we're talking about biotechnology, I mean, boomer bust, right? You know, if you have a clinical stage biotech, biotech, and you own three of them in your portfolio, and that's all you own, uh, one goes south on you, and and you've just taken a huge, huge hit. But you also see that in other sectors and industries as well. Oil and gas has had its fair share of companies that have ended up in bankruptcy as well. Um, um, technology, some of the smaller technology companies, they 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 flame out relatively quickly. So I think that while the temptation is to try and strike it rich with a with a big swing, uh, you have to remember that oftentimes when you swing, you also miss. Yep, absolutely. Before we move on, I want to do a quick plug for some of the Motley Fool's other podcasts. Even though we we love industry focus here on Industry Focus, the Motley Fool actually has five total podcasts. And if you haven't checked them out before, you can head to podcast.fool.com to see the entire collection, including the weekly Rule Breaker Investing podcast, which is excellent and hosted by the Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner himself. So very cool. Head to podcast.fool.com to see more. So, uh, I think something that is important to recognize is that there are two widely uh, established categories of risk that we're dealing with here. So, there's something called systematic risk that's also known as market risk. That's something that is an event that could affect the entire market. So, this is this is why you will diversify across different asset classes, just because, say, the stock market crashes. That is an example of systematic risk, where every single one of your stocks is likely to plummet because of that. But you also have something called idiosyncratic risk, and this is also called specific risk. This is something that is specific to a single industry or even a single asset. So we were talking about boomer bust biotech. So that would be something like your drug fails in a clinical trial, and so that is going to really hamper the stock. Depending on how much of the company's value is tied to that single drug, you could be erasing 90% of the market cap, something like what we saw with Optitech, where their main and only drug completely flopped and it wiped out almost all of the market cap of this company. However, there's also idiosyncratic risk that is specific to an industry as a whole. So this could be something like if if there was some sort of drug price reform and all of a sudden all drug makers are required to have a cap on their margins or some something crazy like that. I mean, political is an obvious uh, example of this, the the political risk that could happen to an entire industry. But you could also get things like uh, like consumer spending, for example, could hit retail as an entire sector really hard if all of a sudden people, if, if unemployment goes up and if people don't have as much discretionary income anymore. So, um, the different types of risk, important to understand because it kind of makes you think about how you're not just diversified because you own 15 to 25 stocks. You also need to figure out how highly correlated are those stocks, and are you attacking different strategies with them? Are you hitting different geographies, and are they made up of different market caps as well? Right, and which obviously brings you to the idea of should I own international stocks as well? And there are a lot of ways, obviously, to try and and make sure that you're not too correlated and. Usually, when you're talking about correlation, you're comparing it to the benchmark. So we'll say the S and P 500. So you can run correlation 
pretty easily just using Excel, Excel spreadsheets. Um, easy for me to say. And, and kind of calculate those things out uh, on your own, and which, of course, is a little bit easier to do if you have a portfolio that's only 12 to 15 names or whatever, and see just how how much risk you're, you're taking on. You can also look at some other, just by going to Yahoo Finance and some of these other sites, you can check the beta, uh, which shows you basically how much the stock will move when the S&P also moves uh, up or down. <clears throat> so you can find that if I have a lot of beta in my portfolio, so let's say I have a beta of two, that means it's going to move two times what the S and P how the S and P moves on average. On average, so I'm exposed to a significant amount of risk if the market tumbles or whatever. And then you can also do correlation inside for the individual industries in healthcare and say, okay, well, are my biotech stocks too heavily correlated to my you know my drug makers, my medical equipment stocks, my medical instrument stocks? How the insurer stocks fit in versus biotech? Etc. So, considering beta, considering correlation, those are ways that you can sort of kind of make sure that all of your um, all of your eggs aren't in the same basket. So, you mentioned that healthcare is a fairly diverse field to begin with, and so that gives me kind of a, a little segue to be able to admit something to you, which is that I am personally grossly overweight in healthcare, and that's because I get really excited about it. I love the industry, but and the way that I can justify this is that healthcare itself is a fairly diverse sector. So you have different types of healthcare stocks. Um, you have, well, for example, you have small caps, you have large caps, you have mid caps. Um, that's, of course, the market cap, the size of the company um, in general. If you have a big established Goliath like a Johnson and Johnson, that in and of itself is a fairly diversified stock. They have all these different units within the company. They have international business, um, as opposed to something like I mentioned earlier, Optotech. I was a shareholder of Optotech. That was a very small cap company that had a pretty single point of failure. Obviously, didn't go well. So, you have uh, within the industry itself, you have different market caps, you have different geographies. Uh, we talk on the show about Teva, for example. They're an Israeli company. Uh, of course, they do a lot of business all over the world, but it is certainly possible to have shares of companies like, say, AstraZeneca or yeah, Roche. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Lots and lots of drug makers are headquartered overseas. Um, you also have non-drug maker healthcare stocks. Every once in a while, we'll get a listener writing in, being like, "Why don't you talk about any other areas of healthcare except for drug makers?" And I, I mean, the answer to that is just that it's the most exciting part of healthcare. At least I, I think Todd, you'll agree with me there. Where there's always news about what drugs are getting approved and how trials are going, but there are other parts to healthcare. I and mean, hopefully, we touch on them enough on the show to keep right. you guys but informed. Yeah, you, you, know, you have your insurers and your retail pharmacies, your PBMs, technology companies. Yeah, that do, like, Viva. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So all of this is to say that within a single sector, you can actually get pretty diversified. And so, as important as it is to touch on different sectors, it is possible to be diversified within each one. And it's important, actually, to be diversified within each one, because you can fool yourself into thinking that you're diversified, because you have two financial stocks, and two healthcare stocks, and two consumer discretionary stocks. But if all of those are, say, microcaps, then you're really not that diversified. Yeah. Well, you know, you've raised so many cool points there. I, one of the things that, that resonated with me, or jumped out at me, was Peter Lynch. You know, famous money manager for Fidelity for years, wrote a wonderful book, Beat the Street, I believe it was named. And he always advocated 
buying what you know, invest in what you know. Well, the risk that you run when you invest in what you know, and you know, we talk healthcare all the time, is that you get very heavily concentrated within that particular area that you know a lot about. You know, so if you you work in retail, you end up owning a portfolio that's got 80% in retail. If you work in healthcare, you own a portfolio that's 80% in healthcare. There can be advantages to that, i.e., you know, if you know the industry really well and the players really well. Maybe that enhances your ability to pick the correct stock. Um, also, that concentration will allow you to outperform the S and P 500 index during periods where the stocks that you own work. Yeah, when you're right. When you're right. Um, you also brought up the point of being diversified within each individual uh, sector. So you're talking about healthcare, and you look at your healthcare holdings and owning an insurer and owning a big cap pharmaceutical company and owning, you know, let's face it. I happen to take on some risk in my portfolio, so I tend to own sometimes some small cap clinical stage companies. And these companies are make it break it companies. And as we already outlined, when their trials go wrong or they receive a, a, a rejection letter from the FDA, you can lose 80% of the value in a particular stock. So I always spread it around a little bit. You know, let's just to throw out numbers, like, okay, so let's say I have $3,000 that I can do something with, and I've got three clinical stage companies that I've done my homework on and I feel pretty good about, and I, I'm going to lean the odds in favor of a victory for these companies. Maybe that leaning the odds is 60-40 or something like that. Again, there's no such thing as a sure thing. So you say to yourself, well, I'll take that $3,000, I'll divide it between those three companies. Now, one may fall 80%, like Axovant Sciences or something recently with their Alzheimer's disease failure, but the other Zogenics may have a success in their epilepsy trial in, you know, triple. And if you look at them as, as a whole, you know, you ended up making money. So I think this, this the, the big thing to remember there is to, to keep everything in Perspective relative to the portfolio and the risk that you're willing to take. Obviously, you know maybe that three thousand is on in a portfolio of a hundred thousand or something like that. You know, if you lose a thousand on a particular stock, it's really not going to move the needle that much for you. But yeah, there's there's a lot of different ways that you can help insulate yourself against risk, and that always brings me to the thought of okay, well, how much do I really want to have in healthcare? Right now, in my portfolio, I'm not maybe I'm not as overweight as potentially you are. Um, I've got about 25% of my portfolio in healthcare stocks, um, but that is overweight relative to the S&P 500, which is, I think, what Christine 14.5. Four, yeah, 14.5, and it's overweighted as a percentage of GDP, because I think as a percentage of GDP, healthcare spending is about 17.8. Huh. So there are different ways that you can look at how much do I want to have exposure to if I'm running a a diversified portfolio of individual investments. How diversified do I want to be? Maybe you want to tie it to the GDP spending number. I mean, there are a lot of reasons, right, Christine, that healthcare makes sense to have in your portfolio. We talk about them all the time on the show. 10,000 baby boomers retiring or turning 65 every day. You've got, what is it, $8 trillion, I think, globally being spent on healthcare globally. And in some estimates, peg that number going to $18 trillion over the course of the next 15 to 20 years. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a growth market, right? Um, and it's an interesting market. It's a fascinating market. I think it deserves a spot in portfolios. You know, and, and don't be too afraid of, of going a little bit over, I guess, um, uh, what may seem 
you know, prudent in that 14, 15% S&P range. Another thing to point out about the healthcare industry is that these are necessary expenses. People are going to be paying insurance premiums and buying prescription drugs, and these are not these are not consumer discretionary purchases. And so they are medications that are life-saving and that people are going to be buying year in and year out regardless of what the rest of the economy is doing. So And with Big Pharma, right Christine, you t- we've talked about this on the show in the past with Johnson and Johnson. Historically, Past performance doesn't guarantee future results. Historically, uh, companies like Johnson & Johnson tend to do better right, during periods of, of stock market pullbacks because of that. Yep. And you get the dividends. Yeah. Johnson Johnson is a fantastic example of a company that has minimal downside risk when the rest of the market seems to be tanking. They've been able to weather the storm very well and continue paying that dividend for over 50 years. It's really an incredible uh, I'm picturing like a giant stable ship going through a bunch of storms. That that's Johnson and Johnson for you, right? And having that as a core holding in your portfolio, and then being able to have some some fun with some of these clinical stage, that's probably a lot wiser of a choice than trying to go out and say, "Yeah, I'm going all in on yeah. mankind." <laughs> yep, bet the ranch because we we heard the stock tip on Industry Focus. <laughs> right. All right, so hopefully that gives our listeners some sort of better sense of how the two of us at least approach portfolio management and putting together a basket of stocks that helps us sleep at night, but also can ultimately help us outperform the market. Because you know, if we didn't want to take on any risk at all, we could just track the market itself. But our our goal here at the Motley Fool is over the long term to beat the market. Uh, before we sign off, Todd, uh, any any final words of wisdom for our listeners? I know you hate when I put you on the spot like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you do that, and I actually was—I uh, had a fun time with Dylan on oh, the technology I heard. show. I heard, and uh, and I, I'm guessing <laughs> up that I actually, yes, I did, Christine. I went on another podcast, uh, but you know, I always say diversify, 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 and I do that for a reason. You know, I'm, I, you know, I, please, listeners, you recognize that you know there are a lot of risks out there. This is a long game. You play the long game. Right? Don't play the short game. Go out there, make wise choices, do your research, do your homework. Don't be afraid of going out and buying individual stocks, but recognize that you know, you're not going to be right a lot. <laughs> you know, but you're the most the... you can lose is everything, which sounds like a... <laughs> that sounds terrible putting it that way. But what I mean by that is that if you are if you're right half the time, then your winners are going to far far outweigh your losers because you can make double, triple, quadruple, ten x your investment as opposed to the most that you can lose as long as you're doing normal investing and you're not dabbling in options or any of this other business. Which is not to say you shouldn't try that, but if you're just doing regular run of the mill investing. The most you can lose is whatever it was that you risked to begin with. Yeah, think about it like baseball, right? You know, if you're batting 300, you're a very good hitter. And, you know, in the stock market, if you're getting one nice big win, one out of three buys, you're doing you're doing fine. You're doing yeah, great. You're doing great. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much, Todd. Very much looking forward to continuing the conversation some more once we kick off the conference in a couple of hours. Thanks for being here today. Oh, thank you for having me. It was fun. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. The show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!